Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series where we interview pastors and professors from across the Living Faith Fellowship and from LFBI on all kinds of topics that range from ministry uh, to missions, theology, and one of the subjects that we keep coming back to is church history. Uh, if you've been with us for any period of time, you've heard several interviews with pastor and professor of LFBI's church history class, Greg Axe. And uh, last time we were together, we had a conversation about Ambrose and Augustine and Jerome, and basically the theology that began to come up in that fourth century time period uh, that impacted the Catholic Church as it moved forward. And now today we're going to be having a conversation about the Dark Ages and the rise of papal authority and the power that it began to uh, to gain. And so, Pastor Greg, welcome. Good to be here. To another episode of The Postscript. Always enjoy it. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad because I'm going to keep asking you to come back. Oh, okay. So you're stuck. Um, let's, let's start by just talking about Rome during this time period, okay. because obviously the Roman Empire and the influence in the West and and up to this point, they had been so powerful. The Roman government and the Roman Empire was vast, and um, but but things begin to change in the 400s. Uh, and so maybe you could tell us a little bit about the environment of Rome in this, in this time period. Well, to pick up a little bit on what you had introduced earlier, the uh, they call it the Dark Ages, um, which the sun came up in the east and set in the west at the same intensity that it always has. As a matter of fact, if you want to be scientific about it, even a little more so because the sun is burning out, right? Mm -hmm, right. So it wasn't dark uh, literally and physically. It right. was dark spiritually. Right. And <clears throat> some people, uh, so a lot of historians are loath to talk about it in that regard because then it sheds bad light, if you want to use that term, mm -hmm. on the Catholic Church because they dominated the world sure. during that particular time. So then they'll turn around and call it the Middle Ages as a result right. uh, because they want to get away from that Dark Ages thing uh, because of the spiritual darkness that took place during this time when Rome locked down the entire world under their totalitarian regime for a thousand years. Right. So when they call it the Middle Ages, then they've dated the, the second coming of Christ because if the Middle Ages are 500 to 1500, then there's the equal amount on both sides. <laughs> and so you can't, get, you can't get away from the Bible whichever way you go with yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's the culture and the time that we're dealing with is the introduction of the term and the time in this when this world was its darkest spiritually mm -hmm. during that particular time. It was the the world like we like like it has never been. Right. Um in in just superstition and weirdness all coming from the the totalitarian control and lockdown of the Bishop of Rome and the and the papal mm -hmm. institution that went on. And that didn't happen overnight, though. Of it, course there's not. A, there's a series of events, yeah. and one of which is that Rome began to lose a little bit of power as mm -hmm. a governmental authority, which left space for the papal authority to kind of step in. Right. And maybe you can walk us through just a little bit of, of what that looked like and how that happened. Yeah, I mean, of course, it started with Constantine when he made the switch from mm -hmm. a, a imperial... Um, governmental control to a spiritual control as well at the same time <clears throat> and morphed the 
old Roman system into the new Roman system of pagan versus papal, mm -hmm. which is basically the same situation. He set up the really the first pope was Sylvester the first in about mm -hmm. 300, 315 or so. And Constantine appointed him as the position of the Bishop of Rome, mm -hmm. um, just basic as a figurehead. Right. Uh, until that point in time, if you really look at history correctly, the Roman Empire at that time was trying to stamp out Christianity for 300 years. Mm -hmm. They were doing everything they could um, militarily and physically speaking to to execute Christians, to burn copies of scriptures, to to obliterate it physically from the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. So why and how would there be a bishop in Rome of a established church if this type of environment is going on? Mm -hmm. It would obviously have to be underground and undercover. Right. When Constantine came in and morphed the thing over, then, then you can start this kind of thing. So Sylvester becomes the figurehead, the first pope, for lack of a better term. The term wasn't even used until uh, probably 100 years even after him. Right. Um, so by the time we get around to 400, this thing, Constantine was around 300-ish, 100 years. I mean, we, we leap over time periods like that without any—in in our minds, 100 years is, is nothing, but it's a whole lifetime— oh, sure. A, a whole generation, several, yeah. a, lot, a lot of things change in 100 years. Things change in our society now in 100 minutes. Yeah. And so during that 100 years, things changed gradually speaking, as you said. It just didn't happen overnight. But by the time you get to around 400 or so, you have people getting on this papal throne who have taken over the world in their mind um, physically, literally, spiritually, religiously, and politically to the point where they're the king of the earth at that mm -hmm. point. And you have a pope by the name of Innocent I, which to me has always been an oxymoron, Pope Innocent. I mean, there's no such thing. Though, yeah, it sounds it? spiritual. Yeah. It's like Pope Pius. Mm -hmm. It's it's such a contradiction in terms. But anyway, you know, Pope Innocent I is the first guy who actually looked at this thing as a universal dominion and stated it as so, that this man, this office, this bishop of Rome now has dominion over the entire earth. Right. So you can see how long it takes 400 years from the time of Christ and 100 years after Constantine made the shift— now you have people starting to say, well, you know, yes, I run the entire world and everybody is subject unto me. Mm -hmm. So it did take a, about that length of time for all this to take place. And then really the, the next major figurehead in, in the narrative, at mm -hmm. least, you know, for the sake of a podcast, sure. um, would, be, would be Leo. Right. And, and his influence, and we're going to kind of camp out here and discuss Leo and okay. his influence on making that that shift between the Bishop of Rome, that title, that figurehead title, mm -hmm. towards a more uh, established perspective of, of a pope and the authority that they, that they have right. uh, in moving forward from this point on. Yeah. So, so you've got a church, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you've got a church, you've got leadership within a church and any organization, institution like that, um, you've got pastors or whatever. But when those pastors of this particular branch of church then begin to make it universal mm -hmm. uh, and morph into the political aspect as well, now I'm ruling not just in a spiritual realm, but I'm ruling in a temporal realm as well. Then you have this marriage of church and state that Constantine was involved in and, and responsible for 
that turns into this kind of beast that happens at this mm-hmm. particular point in time. So you talk about Leo the First, and there's so many of these popes. Two hundred sixty-six popes in the matter of, in in the history of the Catholic Church, according to their records. Right. Um, so you could talk about all of them, but it would it would take you forever. Yeah. But there are certain ones that stand out, and you'd mentioned Leo. Um, <clears throat> there are a number of people in in church history who have been assigned the title of the Great, mm-hmm. Alexander the Great. Pope Leo the First has one of those. He's called Leo the Great. Pope Gregory, that we'll get into before we're done, right. is the first Gregory. The, the Great. great. Yeah. You have Constantine the Great. <clears throat> Charlemagne, the, the, that name Charles is the actually Charles Magni, Charles the Great. Mm-hmm. Okay, And every one of these people who have a great connected with them are the most disgusting, filthy worms that ever lived. You mean they're not, they're not all they're, great? No, oh. no. Great men are not always oh. wise. And uh, sometimes they're just complete antithesis of the word, mm-hmm. and that's what you have in these guys. Well, Leo the Great was around 440 or so, middle of 400s, when he became <clears throat> the pope, and he was the pope for about 20-some years, uh, and he claimed that he was channeling Peter, basically, is what, mm-hmm. he, what he said, that Peter, Peter's relationship, according to him, um, with Jesus— was the same as the relationship with the Pope with Peter now. In other mm-hmm. words, the Lord worked through Peter, the Apostle Peter. We read about him in the New Testament, and right. he was obviously a great man, and um, you know God used him in spite of all of his... His, his flaws, yeah. Uh, type A character, yeah, alpha sure. male, always wanted to be in charge, yet God used him mm-hmm. in a mighty way. Um, and so he become, you know, the Lord spoke through him, his spirit dwelt inside of him, and now Leo takes that same concept and and transfers it to himself, where the spirit of Peter is supposedly dwelling inside of him and all popes, none of them said so up until this point in time, sure. 400 years later. Yeah. We look back on it now, oh, it's always been that way. No, there's nothing like that for all those years. And all of a sudden now Peter is supposed to be dwelling inside of this man and you right. have to obey him because he's the leader of the church. So he's basically making like kind of a mystical successive claim yes. that the apostolic authority and powers uh, pass on mm-hmm. through through the papal order. Right. And now, uh, you know, now it's him. Mm-hmm. And he begins to work at establishing that across the board. I mean, maybe more so than any other, other pope up to this point. Yes. He solidified that office as religious and political both mm-hmm. in a way that nobody before him had. And of course, now it's in that realm and has been for all that length of time. So we look at it now from our vantage point backward and think, well, the pope has always been the spiritual and physical leader of this part of the world or this group of people and mm-hmm. by extension the entire world according to their mindset. But it ha- wasn't always that way. Mm-hmm. Leo's a guy that kind of got that thing going. And <clears throat> through his inner channeling of Peter, which is demonic, mm-hmm. okay, um, that he becomes the head of the church because Peter was supposedly the head of the church. Um, given the keys to the kingdom of heaven and all that kind of stuff. Therefore, ergo, if you don't obey 
me as the Pope, then you can't be saved and salvation is only through the church and only through the obedience to the Pope. Right. And he really locked that thing down a lot right. during his reign. So maybe we can just for a second take a moment to address theologically the air here because um, popes even today, but throughout history, have used uh, you know Matthew 16, mm -hmm. Luke 22, John 21 as an argument, um, you know, Peter being the cornerstone or at the keys uh, right. of heaven. And these, these passages, they use them as a justification for the authority that's successive. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you could take a stab at that for a second and, sure. and tell us why that's error. Well, Matthew 16, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. Mm -hmm. um, they extrapolate that to Peter himself rather than the fact that f over 400 times in the Bible a rock is mentioned, and every single time it's mentioned, it's always talking about God mm -hmm. or Jesus right. Christ. Or right. That rock that followed them was Christ, and their rock is not as our rock, and God is our rock in the book of Psalms. Mm -hmm. um, and they transfer that over to Peter and claim that he is the leader of all the church, and therefore everybody must be subject unto him. And to him were given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's where the theological confusion comes in, mm -hmm. in people not understanding the concept of heaven versus the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of God. Right. And we maybe could spend a whole podcast going through this. Sure. And still never touch it because it is a very involved issue. But the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. The kingdom of heaven is the Jewish reign of the Messiah on the throne, of which was typified through the Old Testament with David, Solomon, and the other kings of the nation of Israel. God mm -hmm. wanted to establish a physical kingdom of people on this earth with his laws and with his structure to be able to draw the world to uh, to a relationship with him through what he had established in a physical world. Right. At some point in time, Jesus will return to this earth and set up that physical world uh, called the kingdom of heaven. And that kingdom of heaven was available and and possible when Jesus was here the first time. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm -hmm. He could have set himself up as the king at that point sure. in time had his people accepted him. And when Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom of heaven to Peter, it was to open, a, that's what a key does, opens mm -hmm. a door, right? Mm -hmm. He was wanting to open the door to the Jewish people to bring them into a relationship with him right. as their Messiah king. Mm -hmm. They rejected him. The door was closed. The keys were taken back. Yeah. Peter is not standing at the pearly gates welcoming people into heaven because he has the keys to heaven. Mm -hmm. He had the keys to the kingdom of heaven, which was to bring the Jews into their Messiah relationship with Jesus Christ. And when they rejected him, that that was right. done right. and over with at that point in time. And again, that that's a very short answer to a very involved theological yeah. issue. Yeah, and... And so just to, to briefly make this point, I mean, mm -hmm. it comes up again and again in the topic of church history, because particularly the Catholic Church, because so much of the doctrine and dogma is wrapped up in the confusion mm -hmm. between kingdom of and he heaven and kingdom of God, that not making that distinction actually results in a lot of um, authoritarian action, the yes. Crusades. Um, mm -hmm. And we talk about this a little bit in our previous episode when we discussed Augustine and mm -hmm. the city of God. 
was basically Augustine's theological presentation of this idea of heaven on earth through the church yes. and completely misses the distinction between kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. um, and so we'll, we'll continue to address this as long as we're talking sure. about the Catholic church. But so, so they miss this as it concerns Peter. Mm -hmm. And then they begin using this term or this phrase, papal infallibility. Um, and, and Leo begins to work at getting this established both through his actions um, right. and through and through uh, maybe spiritual authorities, through Catholic authorities, um, through councils and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about the governmental piece for just a minute. Sure. So because there's a void in Rome at this time in terms of power and, and um, their ability to attend to every um, political issue that arises, uh, there is a bit of a vacuum, and mm -hmm. Leo begins to enter into it and intercede as a governmental authority. There's a shift and a bit of a power that's given to him, and I think it's most uh, clearly explained in this situation with Attila the Hun. Right. So maybe you can explain the Attila the Hun and and Leo interaction and and what his role was and how that began to to play into the shift of power. Well, there's always been in the history of man and always will be until Jesus comes, the battle and struggle between groups of people trying to capture land and, and establish their reign mm -hmm. and rule upon the earth and ultimately everybody trying to take over the earth, be the king of the world. Everybody wants to be king of the world, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you know. And so um, you've got the Roman Empire under the Caesars, Constantine, and it begins to morph into a spiritual connection as well, mm -hmm. but the political begins to fragment in the 400s, and other groups rise up. You have the Vandals, you have the Visigoths, you have the Huns. These are different groups of people who raise up armies and start marching through particular areas and conquering those areas. Fracturing the kingdom. Fracturing basically. the yeah. kingdom and warfare, and, yeah. and they... They take land. It's the it's the ultimate game of risk that plays out over two thousand mm -hmm. years or six thousand years of human history, but two thousand years of the church age, where here comes this group and they're they're gaining a lot of ascend ascendancy. And <clears throat> so all these different groups like that are doing that. And one of the main ones that you mentioned was the Huns, who come out of the area of Germany mm -hmm. and Attila. Everybody is familiar with at least the name, if they don't right. know anything about what happened. But Attila was the leader of the Hun, the group of the called the Huns, who conquered much of Europe at that particular point in time mm -hmm. and were coming down through Italy and threatening to to capture that area and turn it into to a German stronghold. Mm -hmm. um, Pope Leo, by this point in time, is a very energetic man, a very strong leader. I mean, there's nobody questioning that, but he's got this inner Peter thing channeling through him, according mm -hmm. to him, and he's the spiritual head of the church, and now he becomes the political head of the church as well during this time. And he went out and, according to the records of history, had met with Attila and stopped him in his approach toward Rome. Attila and, and the group had actually made it into Italy and were threatening Rome yeah. on the north side. Right. Um, and he, he w withstood them. Now, there's very little information as to how it happened, mm -hmm. when it happened. There's no video 
Right. Okay. So we don't know how the negotiations no, went. We don't know how the negotiation went. According to a lot of the standard church history records, um, when when Leo went out and met with Attila, here's where you get the superstition coming in. Mm. That there was a vision of Peter and Paul as well with drawn swords standing next to Leo and telling Attila, you, you're going to stop right here and mm -hmm. you come in and we're going to cut your heads off. And that supposedly that scared him off. Right. Um, now, A, that didn't happen because God doesn't operate that way in this, in this age. And B, if it did happen, if there was a vision, it was a similar type of vision that Constantine had where Christ appeared to him. And whenever you hear somebody say, Christ appeared to me, What's your first question? Which Christ? Sure. Because there's two of them in the Bible. Right. Okay? And my Jesus doesn't show up to people and tell them to continue murdering other people right. to attain uh, yeah. world dominion. Yeah. So if this vision took place, it was a demonic vision to restrain him to preserve the institution of Catholicism on, that was being consolidated here by Leo, and supposedly he he withheld that was around 450 or so that mm -hmm. he restrained the Huns from coming into Rome and sacking that city. So then, how does that begin to change Leo's role? So people begin to see him differently. Obviously, after he saves Rome and Italy, essentially. He, yeah, he's no he, he's no longer just a pastor of a church, albeit. Universal and you know, institutional church around yeah. the world, not just a local church. He's no longer that. He's now a military general. Mm -hmm. He's now a political leader. He's now uh, inserted himself into the uh, affairs of war. He's inserted himself into governmental negotiations mm -hmm. between entities and powers. And it, again, these things don't happen overnight. They unfold over large blocks of time. So now you have a Catholic church to roll the calendar way ahead and then come back. Now you have a Catholic church today that is a state. Vatican is a country yeah. uh, of 100 acres, the smallest country by land size in the world, less than 1,000 residents, the smallest country on earth in population, and yet the country on earth that can, that wields the most control and influence across the earth, just that little bitty spot. Mm -hmm. And the nations of this world, United States, Russia, China, all have diplomatic relations with the, with the Vatican mm -hmm. as a legal governmental entity. Um, no other religion has that. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> so... The Vatican State is an institution and government that begins to formulate spiritually and religiously under Leo the Great or Leo the Not Great. Okay, so that's actually has to do with my next question. Okay. So basically what you're talking about is the, the repercussions of Leo's uh, position, authority, influence. Really, we've, we can watch that influence all the way through church history up till today. And in mm -hmm. fact, I wanted to ask you about the first Vatican Council okay. of 1868, mm -hmm. um, where where papal infallibility became a part of doctrine, Catholic doctrine. Maybe you can explain that and how that's even influenced 
up till today, the, the way people see the Pope and his role and, and, and his influence. Yeah, and people look back on it again today. And again, the, the without having a perspective of history, people don't get these things. Today, in the 2000s, we look back at papal infallibility. It's been around forever, hasn't it? Mm. No, it wasn't until the First Vatican Council in 1868-1870 that the, the concept of papal infallibility became a doctrine of the Catholic Church. Mm. So for 1,800 and some years, according to the Catholic Church, for 1,400 according to—because the Catholic Church wasn't around until around 400—but for all that length of time, the Pope was viewed as infallible, but it wasn't an official cardinal doctrine of the Church in print until 1870, mm -hmm. and that's when that first Vatican Council came around to to establish that af much much after the fact. Well, these these men who occupy this office put themselves in that position throughout that time, and everybody looked at it that way. They just never spelled it out in that direction right. until that particular point in time in 1870 or so. Hmm. And so even today, I mean, we can feel the influence of that, especially, I think maybe less so in, in America, maybe we're less inclined to just assume that the Pope is always right. Right. Um, and so maybe in the West, there's a little more criticism of his position and things mm -hmm. that he says, and, and uh, maybe even among Catholics in, in the yeah. States. Yeah. But in other places in the world, um, particularly places like Africa mm -hmm. and South America, he still, that position still holds an incredible amount of weight. And it's seen from even a superstitious perspective. Yeah. And it holds a lot of weight here too. But like you said, it is a little different because mm -hmm. cultures are different. And here in the United States, we're independent cusses. So we, mm -hmm. we don't like anybody telling us what to do. Right. And you know, um, we don't like our mom and dad telling us what to do. So we're going to go join the army, right? That's right. what kids do. And so we're we are a little bit rebellious in that regard, but yet there's still that that concept, that mystical connection of the Pope is God on earth. Um, it's even stronger in Europe, where this is in their backyard constantly and has mm -hmm. been for all these years. And in Latin America, the Catholic Church is a lot more mystical, mm -hmm. um, but it's political, religious, mystical. It, that concept of the Pope being the representative of God and he can do no wrong. Right. Um, and yet at the same time, so many of them were guilty of murder and adultery and whatever you want to call it. You could get into discussion of that and make your hair stand on end, talking right. about some of the wickedness that came out of the men who held those offices. Yeah, The concept of ex cathedra is part of what Roman doctrine says. Now, ex cathedra means out of the cathedral or out of the chair, which mm -hmm. is the, what that means, out of the seat of Rome. So if you want to look at papal infallibility, technically speaking, according to Roman doctrine, it is that when the Pope speaks as in his office as the supposed spiritual leader of the Catholic Church, that he is infallible in the doctrines that he says. Even if you take the supposed ex-cathedra statements that are out of the chair from the seat of Peter in my official capacity and as a position uh, of the of authority as the pope 
and take those doctrines and those statements, you can find plenty of error and contradiction right. in them within each other and obviously yeah if from it's the of, word god, of god god doesn't contradict himself exactly right? and, and obviously so, from the word of god you could take the bible and and, and nuke these right. papal claims of, of infallibility sure. sure easily right um so with that said i mean the narrative here is going to progress anytime mm -hmm. we're talking about church history we're going to be talking about the pope yeah uh, the pope of that era that time frame and so you know, Leo's legacy follows him through each one of these yep. offices and yep. each one of these men. And so we'll be continuing to look at papal authority as mm -hmm. we go. Uh, but to set us up for the next episode, which is also about the rise of papal authority, we're going to continue to address that. Um, maybe just recap, what was Leo's influence and in terms of moving us from... Um, you know, a time period of Roman empiricism into kind of a Holy Roman Empire that grows darker and darker and more and more superstitious in the Dark Ages. Maybe just to summarize for us how Leo influenced that and those steps forward. <clears throat> Leo's influence primarily is the fact that he was one of the early men to um, get involved in warfare, political negotiation with Attila the Hun and be a not just a religious leader, but a political leader as well. Mm -hmm. And bringing both of those aspects into the office of the Pope. And then the superstition is another issue. I mean, the next Pope, we're going to talk about Gregory, would be mm -hmm. a, a key in that figure. But a lot of these pagan superstition things coming in from Babylonian religion, uh, Leo was a theologian as well, and he introduced some of these things into his... Um, into the church right. as well. But his main contribution was uh, taking this office from the Bishop of Rome to the army general that leads the Roman armies and defends Rome against attack yeah. and is the negotiator, the skilled orator, and and the, uh, the man who meets with other generals and stops warfare and the political entity combining with the religious entity as well. That's his main legacy mm -hmm. that he leaves behind. So that's perfect. Yes. Uh, so we'll stop right there. Okay. Because next time we come together, we're going to continue talking about the Middle Ages and about how papal authority continues to evolve right. and how it is constantly jockeying alongside the empire for authority and position. And so we'll come back together next yes. week and address that. Uh, if you have not yet purchased your copy of Church History, this is Greg's book on church history, okay? And so if you've enjoyed this conversation at all, you can find this book on the Living Faith Books section of the Living Faith Fellowship website and on Amazon. So pick up your copy if this is interesting to you at all. Uh, also, consider uh, checking out LFBI.org if you're interested in taking classes next semester. Uh, those classes should be coming out soon. And so the next uh, set of classes and courses for the winter spring semester should be should be out soon. And, and you can visit the website there if you're considering classes for next semester. We want to thank you for joining us. And we're going to ask that you join us next week as we continue talking about the rise of papal authority. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Postscript listeners, we've hit 52 episodes and we're so thankful for the fact that you've joined us for so many interviews with pastors and professors as they've come through the studio. And we really do hope that it's been an encouragement to you. 
Now we're really excited because we have an announcement to make. This fall, we're gonna be launching a new segment called PS Plus, and it's gonna be hosted by my dear friend, Van Sneed. So if you're listening to this and you're probably already familiar with the format of the postscript where each week Pastor Brandon interviews pastors and missionaries and other professors from the Living Faith Bible Institute. Well, on the PS Plus, we'll take a look at some of the topics that are being discussed and do a deep dive. But don't let that fool you. The episodes are going to be 10 to 15 minutes, so they're short, they're sweet, they're edifying for you, but they're also shareable with your friends, your families and other folks that need to hear it. So that's a really good point. We've always wanted the postscript to be edifying and encouraging to you, but now we're going to be creating content that's shareable for your friends and family. If they want to hear more about what you believe, this is going to be the perfect opportunity for them. So we're really excited about this and we hope you join us this fall for the PS Plus. We'll see you soon.